Okay. That is on. Uh, let me just move it up a little bit. Okay. Good evening. I'm Kevin Griffin. This is the Dharma and Recovery Group. Thank you for coming. Ah, just driving out and you know, look at the sky as the sun is going down a little earlier, day by day. And that kind of melancholy autumn feeling started to come over me. I don't know if you had that one, but uh, I'm from the East Coast in the fall. We always start to get gray and cold and and, uh, and then you were in school, so that sucked. And uh, just the only thing you had to look forward to was Christmas. So, uh, we will uh, do some meditation this evening. And, um, and uh, you know, I sort of have a a proverbial grab bag of topics to explore tonight. And I'll, I'll see what gets your attention or what gets your interest, uh, what you want to particularly focus on uh, as I kind of move through a few different things. Um, I'm about to embark on a couple weeks of being away, uh, going to the East Coast to teach a retreat at Kripalu and then in New York, and then I'll be teaching this retreat which is still open, the Buddhism 12-step retreat. Michael, are you coming? Mm-hmm. I, of course you are. Michael's been on that retreat many times. And uh, this is our 10th, 10th anniversary of, uh, I was going to say Kevin Griffin and Heather Sundberg, like, of myself and Heather Sundberg. She's actually teaching retreat here, I think, this weekend, um, of teaching this retreat together. And, and we, you know, we started it, so in... in uh, I don't know, it was, thir- was it 2003 or 2004? Anyway, it, this is the 10th time, so I think we started in 2004. And, um, you know, and we had never taught, really, a retreat based on this, this work, on kind of blending Buddhism and, and Dharma, Buddhism and 12 steps. And uh, so it was kind of a, an adventure and a, and a risk to some extent. Um, but it, it certainly went well that first year, and it's gone well every year. It's uh, somewhat of a unique blend. I mean, we we um, tried to bring the kind of uh, really wholehearted meditation practice and blend it with some 12-step work. So a typical retreat here at Spirit Rock is conducted essentially in silence. Uh, and it's sitting meditation and walking meditation. And there will be some you know, some teachings, and you meet with a teacher maybe every few days, but mostly you're in silence. Um, and, of course, a 12-step retreat, is, there's not much silence, if any, on the 12-step retreats. Um, <laughs> and, and I actually, to me, there's value in both of those. Uh, and so what we do on the, this retreat is we... We have a silent morning, 
And in the afternoon, we have about an hour and a half of workshop time when we, but that's very structured, so uh, it's not kind of just hanging out or conversation. It's, it's you, t- you get specific topics and very clear instruction on how to even listen and how to speak. So it's, it's formal in a way. It's, it's, I consider it another form of meditation. It's like interactive meditation, essentially. And, uh, and in the evening, we, we do have a regular talk, uh, Dharma talk, and then we close the evening with a, a meeting, basically a circle, and time for people to share it. And it, it blends, gentlemen, please come in and take, grab a seat, or just, you know, you can stand back there and take our inventory. It's really, it's okay. We're used to that. Um, so it's, it's kind of neat, because uh, uh, for me, all silence can kind of build up a kind of sense of pressure in a way, being just in silence, and, which can be a useful pressure, but not always something you want to experience. And then all talking doesn't give me really much chance to really get quiet and get calm uh, and to do more inner reflection. So blending them uh, seems to be very effective. So that's the end of my commercial for the retreat. There's, there are flyers out there. As I say, it is still open. Because we put it on ourselves, we're pretty flexible in terms of when people register. There's often people at the last day, you know, there's always somebody at the last day who panics and doesn't come. You know, that's normal. We know about that story. And there's often someone who just hears about it, like the day before. Wow, I heard there's this retreat. Can I come? Uh, why not take the place of the person who just ran away? <laughs> So I do have some juicy tidbits to share with you tonight, but um, we should start with some meditation. And um, I will, uh, as usual, give some instruction in meditation. So if you're not familiar with meditation practice or haven't done a lot of meditation, this will be a chance to get some guidance into how to work with this particular practice, the mindfulness or uh, vipassana meditation. And of course, if you're an experienced practitioner, you can either ignore me or just um, take it in as you wish. I think one of the things that's overlooked often in our understanding of meditation is the importance of our body, both in terms of how we hold our body as we sit, and even more how we engage our awareness of our body when we're sitting. So I'd like to just start by suggesting that you Really become aware of how you're sitting and try to, you know, sit in an upright way that's comfortable, though. So we kind of want to get that balance between kind of, uh, you know, being very alert uh, without getting rigid or tense. And then you can gently close your eyes, or if you're not comfortable closing your eyes, just lower your gaze so you're not engaging in the visual field. Now feeling your body sitting. Does anything stand out in terms of the sensations you might feel right now? Just noticing. Noticing. 
and then relaxing, letting your jaw relax, the small muscles around the eyes, the forehead. Relaxing your shoulders. Arms and hands. Softening the belly. Letting the breath move deeply into the belly. Letting the chest be open. And relaxing through the hips and pelvis, the legs and feet. And just feeling the body as a single object sitting, a single object that has many different sensations within it. Becoming aware of the sounds that you can hear, my voice, other sounds in the room, these sounds from outside, sounds from inside your own body. Noticing now your mood, just to see if there's any particular feeling or emotion or background mood that's prevalent, you can identify. See if you can sense your mood in your body the belly or the chest.
Finally, letting the attention rest on the breath. So not excluding these other perceptions from your awareness, but letting awareness of the body and sounds, mood, let that move into the background as awareness of the breath moves into the foreground. You can begin by feeling the whole breath, how air enters the body, moves through the throat and the lungs, the belly expands. The belly contracts, the air moves out. Just relaxing and observing this in a very simple way, like observing any aspect of nature. You might look at the moon or a sunset, a flower or a butterfly. In the same way, we just notice the breath another natural thing, another natural process. We perceive it through our sense of touch. Just to observe nature has a natural calming effect on the mind brings our attention into the present moment, allows us to connect with the rhythm and the laws of nature. The balancing of in and out The breath must keep moving for us to live. And then beginning to pay attention to a particular point in the breath. And pay attention to the breath at the nostrils, where the air comes in and out. Just letting your attention rest like a sentinel, watching the gateway of the breath as the air passes in and out through the gate. where you can feel the breath in the belly, the rising and falling, expansion and contraction.
natural for the mind to wander as we try to pay attention to the breath. When this happens, when you realize that you're thinking instead of feeling, that words and images have captured your attention, just acknowledge that. No judgment, no blame. Just come back to the breath. Reconnect with the sense experience. The effort we make to be with the breath isn't a grasping or a struggle, more an inclining of the mind. A setting of intention. Knowing that we can't stay every moment with the breath. Just trying to connect really with the pleasant experience of calmly breathing and breathing calm.
And notice not only when the mind wanders, but when the heart wanders. When you get caught up in some emotion, perhaps around your thoughts. Notice what happens in the body when you're caught in thinking. Notice that tension. Sometimes we can feel the body releasing chemicals or different forms of energy into our system. We're not trying to control our experience. Our emphasis is on awareness of what is happening. That doesn't mean we just let the mind wander off. But it particularly means that we don't analyze or judge ourselves, try to figure out what's going on, just observe and dispassionately without judging, without analyzing, without identifying. It's not about me.
our experience changes over time. You might get more settled or you might get more anxious. You might get more alert or more sleepy. A particular thought or worry might capture your mind. You might think you've figured it out, or you might believe that you'll never be able to meditate. They're all just passing thoughts, passing experiences, and not to be taken as truth or fact. just to be observed. We particularly see their passing nature, their nature to not be solid or permanent. The constant flow But if we don't stay with it and sit with it, we never get to see this. We actually need to see clearly our lack of control in meditation so that we can let go in the same way that we see our lack of control over our addiction. When we surrender to that, that's when we have access to peace.
So I'd like to uh, open it up for any questions about meditation, if there are any. Maybe your minds are empty now. Difficulties, uh, challenges, uh, misunderstandings. Okay, then. Um, where shall I start this evening? Um, well, I think I'll start with this. I, uh, spent last weekend out in Arizona uh, teaching a retreat with a Qigong teacher, actually. The author of this new book, which isn't out yet, will be out in December, Qigong in Recovery. Beautiful, beautiful book. Greg Pergament, he lives in Las Vegas and teaches out there. And we we co-taught a retreat in Sedona. It was pretty, pretty powerful. Uh, But the guy who uh, organized the retreat um, is something of an AA historian. He's explored a lot the history of AA. We were talking about some of the, some of the, uh, I guess mostly about the assumptions. Uh, So if you'll excuse me, just getting a little bit into little stuff that there's. A lot of people who seem to believe that uh, Dr. Bob, Bob Smith, who was Bill Wilson's co-founder of AA, that he was uh, very rigidly Christian. And there's actually a a guy out there known as Dick B. who claims that uh, Dr. Bob was a born-again Christian and that he believed that you had to be, you know, take Jesus Christ as your personal Savior in order to get sober. And uh, I remember reading that and being somewhat troubled by it, not having any context for understanding that. But uh, Jay, the guy who took me out to, or invited me to Arizona and ran that retreat, um, uh, brought my attention to some literature that is quite interesting. Uh, so stay with me, because you're going to... I think you'll find this interesting. So... Uh, as you know, the big book was published, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was published, I think, in 1939, and mostly written by Bill Wilson. And there were contributions and edits from other people in the program, but he was the main author. And, uh, you know, Bill was from New York, and he had, I think, gone back to New York by then, whereas the program actually started in Akron, Ohio. I don't know if some of you will know this history, and, you know, there's a play that depicts all that, and I guess maybe the movie, too. I haven't seen that movie, the the documentary, or I haven't seen any of the movies. Anyway, um, so apparently there was like a little bit of a, the people in Akron kind of felt that Bill had kind of overdone it with the big book, that he had written something that wasn't going to be really accessible to a newcomer. And they wanted something that would be very accessible and simple and direct. So they wrote a series of 
uh, pamphlets. You know, we see these pamphlets. If you go to 12-step meetings, you see them in various subjects and topics. Well, uh, this pamphlet uh, was called Spiritual Milestones in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't have the exact date that it was written. And it wasn't written by Dr. Bob, but according to Jay, and uh, this, is, this is Jay Stinnett, and uh, so far I don't have anything to you know, uh, believe otherwise. Uh, Bob basically asked the guy who wrote this to write this and to say these things. So uh, there was one key paragraph here. I'm just going to give you read two paragraphs. So the first one says, um, The spiritual life is by no means a Christian monopoly. There is not an ethical religion in the world today that does not teach to a great extent the principles love, charity, and goodwill. Principles of love, charity, and goodwill. So, pretty simple statement, but, you know, one to recall when people say that 12 steps are Christian. But here's where it gets good. It then talks about a couple of different religions. It talks about uh, Muhammad and it talks about uh, Judaism. Then it comes to this. This is, I mean, I'm sorry, let me just read it because it blows my mind. Consider the eight-part program laid down in Buddhism. Right view, right aim, right speech, right action, right living, right effort, right mindedness, and right contemplation. The Buddhist philosophy, as exemplified by these eight points, could be literally adopted by AA as a substitute for or addition to the 12 steps. Generosity, universal love, and welfare of others rather than considerations of self are basic to Buddhism. The Eightfold Path could be adopted by AA as a substitute for the 12 steps. And that just totally blew my mind. (laughs) And it pretty much flies in the face of all the issues that people have with AA, you know, that, oh, it's Christian, you've got to believe in God. There's no re- reference to God in there or that, that God is necessary, right? Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I had always thought that they, these guys didn't know anything about Buddhism. I, I just assumed that they sort of had some vague idea of the Buddha, but that I had no idea that they actually knew about the Eightfold Path, you know. But for for them to for Doctor Bob to actually support the idea that the eightfold path could be could replace the twelve steps, even I, I don't actually go that far, frankly. I, you know, it's it's a little extreme. You know. I mean, there is an argument to be made, you know, and that's sort of what Noah Levine is working with a lot these days, which is, you know, certainly a credible one. I just like the. I like the process that the steps take us through. And I, and I think that rather than the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, of which the Eightfold Path is the fourth, that captures more what the Twelve Steps are about because the Eightfold Path doesn't sort of address the issue of craving so directly as the, and, the, and of suffering that the First and Second Noble Truths address. 
Um, and that, that when you put that together with the Eightfold Path, you do have something that I think is uh, just describing the same thing in different terms. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to figure out what to do with this information besides, like, write a blog about it, you know. Um, I guess it's just it's comforting to me, for sure. Um, so I thought you might find that interesting. So that's the beginning of our, what did I call it, grab bag. So, um, we'll take a break at some point. Usually you guys have something to say. I don't get paid anything extra if, you know, you don't, so it just means I have to work more, but that's all right. I mean, yes? Okay, uh, great stuff, thanks. Um, I've been uh, struck by something lately. I think that um, when you go to deep meditation and work it out and have lots of results of insight, I go, what's the point, you know? And uh, come to, it picked up a book, uh, Boundless Heart, Broad Horizon. And I like that. Uh, and it talked about metta, the four qualities of metta, mudita, karuna, upekka, and um, one other. Right. That is one of the four qualities. Huh? That is one of the four qualities. Right, anyway, yeah. Okay. That's very similar to me. I think there's a parallel to the four absolutes. Absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. Um, I'm not sure how it works together, but I have a strong feeling for it. And I'm just trying to put it into practice. I think that in my experience, uh, for myself personally, that uh, the metta is becoming more important than the meditation. The meditation is just a vehicle to get me to the metta. Well, met, you know, I mean, metta is taught. No, no, yeah, metta. I mean, it's taught as a meditation. I mean, it's interesting that you know we're seeing that um, more of the Dharma teachers are actually kind of talking about mindfulness as containing loving kindness. Um, that they're that it's sort of they're not separate things, and I and I think that's true. I think that um, when we really become present, our hearts open. You know, that's one of the qualities of being present. If you're present and your heart isn't open, you're not really fully present. Um, so I, that's I, the four absolutes. That's like that's one of those teaching things. I don't really know. That's from. All oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I'm not. I'm a little skeptical when I hear the word absolute about many things, but uh, but they're good. They're good. Um, they're good guidelines. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, when you talk about well, you, what you're talking about, just to cl- clarify, it, those four are called the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness. Compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, and um, although we often do talk about the meta as kind of meta practice as kind of containing all of those, but uh, yes, there is, as you say, kind of a, a boundless quality to those practices that that, that has a, a sense of oneness, which can be called absolute. If, you know. What is Brahma Vihara? Uh, 
It means, uh, no, it means uh, uh, divine, well, divine abode. So Brahma, Brahmas are the gods, and Vihara is, the, is a place to live. It's a spiritual, you know, like they, sometimes monks live in a Vihara. So, yeah, it's divine abodes is how we define it. So it's kind of like, um, you know, we can think of it as kind of the heavenly emotions, you know, the highest forms of emotion. And they're, they're, it's when emotion moves into an impersonal realm. It's not a, not a personal motion. One of the problems, and I've been writing about this, is I'm working on this new book about, about happiness and contentment in recovery. And, and so uh, talking about loving-kindness practice, one of the ways that I think people misunderstand loving-kindness is that the idea that we're just supposed to feel really loving, like this sweet, warm affection for everybody. And, and I mean, which, yeah, that's great. And the Buddha certainly encourages us to feel love towards everybody, but the, the loving-kindness practice is much more layered than that because what what can happen with people is they uh, this happens with my college students I teach a college course on Buddhism and I teach them loving kindness practice where you send loving kindness to people you love and then to neutral people and then to difficult people right and they just want to send loving kindness to people they love you know and they just talk about oh yeah I was just sitting there sending love to my mother or my you know my uh, brother or something and and I'm like you know that's not what this practice is that's nice that's a nice feeling but that's just a way to make yourself feel good and loving kindness practice we we focus on people we love more to identify what it is we're trying to get at and to kind of open ourselves up so that we can prepare ourselves than to move out of that personal realm of people we know that we care about into this more uh impersonal, unconditional love, where we love all beings. Now, and that's where it becomes a challenge, and that's where we, real, we start to hit uh, difficulties. And, but the value of that, of course, then the practice moves from being uh, a hard practice, it then starts to include insight practice, because we see, oh, this is my resistance, this is where I get stuck. Um, I mean, one of the most interesting insights for me when I started to do loving-kindness practice was to see that when I worked with the people I loved, then I got to the difficult people, a lot of the, it was the same people a lot of the time. You know? <laughs> well, that was really, you know, opened up a lot for me. Um, but, the, but also just seeing our fears and, and where we hold on and, and all of that, uh, that's, a, that's a big part of that practice and, and getting overwhelmed by it. Um, and then, uh, besides that, then loving kindness also is used. The Burmese, I think, I don't think they really care much about love. The Burmese monks, I mean, they're great, but they're not sweet, you know, the ones I've encountered and read. They use that practice as a way of deepening concentration, because that's what they're interested in in getting very deep concentration because in the text, the Buddha says, you know, get very concentrated and then start to pay attention to the arising and passing and knowledge of 
and vision of the way things are. And basically he's saying the mind has to get very concentrated in order to have the breakthrough of consciousness. It's called enlightenment. And loving kindness is a great way to do that because it's a very structured and busy practice that keeps you really engaged. There's a, there's a visual element, a visualization. There's a verbal element where you're repeating phrases. There's a heart element. There's a physical element. So all that stuff can really capture the mind and the attention can get very concentrated. You know, it's like my first meditation teacher said, you know, you can use anything as a mantra. You can just say Coca-Cola over and over and, you know, your mind will get concentrated. So, uh, but, you know, the loving kindness is a way to invite people in like, oh, come to this nice loving kindness practice. But it's kind of like the steps, like they're, the purpose of the steps isn't really quite what it always looks like it is. And then you discover later on, oh, there was another purpose to that. You learned something different from what you thought you were learning. And it's the same thing with loving kindness practice. All of a sudden you find your mind like just locked in and, and it's not about feeling sweet puppy love, you know. It's, it's uh, a really a transcendent state. Uh, well, we could call it transcendent. Thanks for getting me started. That's all I needed. So we should, let's take a break. And uh, before, well, before we do, I'll say couple things. Well, I, I already advertised, so that's great. Look at flyers if you're interested in that retreat. Um, if you're interested in this book, come up and look at it. Wonderful. As I said, really, I think Qigong in recovery is really good for us. Um, I have CDs of my Laughing Buddha CD, and I have decided that they, I have to sell them for $10. God told me to. So. And also, they weren't, you know, it was just... So, um, so buy them, please. Uh, and uh, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, uh, please, greet each other. Although you might not know the person beside you, they're here for similar reasons as you, and this is an opportunity to meet people who are on a similar path. So um, please uh, be friendly. And we'll ring a bell in a few minutes and come back, and I'll be just as disorganized then as I am now. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.